Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 27, going through 36. Luke chapter 6. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also, and whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies. And do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would make us Uh, make us poor in spirit, that you would make us hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Father, that you would uh, make us like little children that are waiting to receive a meal, Lord, and that we would feast upon your word and that we would be nourished and strengthened to do your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. There are certain verses of Scripture that the enemies of God know very well. Probably the most quoted verse, verse by or verses by those who hate God and hate His Word are the ones just ahead of our passage in Luke. Do not judge. Right? Luke 6.37 When those words are said today, uh, what most people mean is don't call my sin sin. Leave me alone. You can't judge. Another favorite verse that is brought up by those who hate God's word is the one we are looking at this morning. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And the verse is often quoted by those who are attacking Christians. And what they mean by quoting it is Jesus told you that you have to treat me well. Jesus told you, you have to love me. You have to shut your mouth and be kind to me because I'm your enemy. Uh, Just as Satan did with God's word when tempting Jesus in the wilderness, many often distort and twist God's word, right, to make it suit their own ends. We can twist it and make it a weapon. Uh, This often happens with the verses we are uh, giving our attention to 
uh, this morning. Uh, let me summarize for you the main principle that the Holy Spirit is teaching us in this passage. It's this, do good to those who do evil to you. Do good to those who do evil to you. Now stop and let that sink in. Do good to those who do evil to you. Now in the first part of Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, or this is a sermon like the Sermon on the Mount, um, we learn certain truths that give our passage some, some context. When we live for Jesus, we can expect that many will hate us. Right? Many will hate us if we live for Jesus. And in fact, we are to consider it a blessing from God when we are poor, when we are hungry, when we are weeping, when we are hated, when we're ostracized and insulted and scorned because of Jesus, uh, because of our faith in Jesus Christ. When we are living for God, the enemies of God will be, will, um, be discontent with us. And they will want to fight with us. They will provoke us, they will insult us, they will punish us, and sometimes even cast us into prison and uh, seize our property. <clears throat> in other words, if we are being faithful, we will experience life in a very similar manner uh, to the way the Son of God did. Right, Not even having a place to lay his head. So in verses 20 through 26, Jesus is saying, here's what you can expect if you follow me. Then in the verses we're looking at today, Jesus is teaching us how to act when we find ourselves in those circumstances. He teaches us that we will be hated, then teaches us about how to act toward those who hate us. Right? He's teaching us how to be Christians in a world hostile to Christ and his teaching. Now notice in the first few words of verse 27, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear. I say to you who hear. The scriptures in general are that which no unconverted man can love and receive. That is essentially what Jesus is saying when he, when he addresses those who hear. Only those who have been given ears to hear, who have been given a, a change of heart, who have been made alive by God's Spirit can accept the things taught in this passage. <clears throat> they are contrary to our natural disposition, which hates and lashes out and seeks revenge and steals and makes demands of everybody else and every other authority. Right? One must be born again to accept what is written here. And if you are not, your posture toward the world and her authorities, and especially her abuses, will only and always be defy tyrants. Right? That posture, no matter how minuscule the abuse that you are receiving, it will always be defy tyrants. Only one who has had his sins forgiven in Jesus Christ will understand what it means to love your enemies. Only one who has been forgiven of his, his uh, I'd call it cosmic treason against the perfect and holy God will be able to approach these verses with faith. Our, our account 
are uh, the balance of sins that we've committed against God, the way that we have uh, made and seen God as our enemy. Given that reality, it is only by the regeneration of the Spirit that we could come to this passage and put these things into practice. While we were God's enemies, the Father sent His Son to die for us. While we were hostile in mind toward God, even while, we were, while He was loving us through the sacrifices of, of His only Son, um, we were hostile. Right? He was forgiving us a massive debt while we were adding to that debt. And so it is only the poor in spirit, those who know their spiritual poverty and the grace of God, who can read a command like, love your enemies. And say, ah, right. That's what God has done for me. That's what God has done for me. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so, dear brothers and sisters, God is not requiring something from us that he has refused to do himself. He's calling us to be, as it says in verse 35, sons of the Most High. And for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. He's calling us to do what he has done. And he is calling you to do what he has done for you. Right? He is calling the church to do what he has done for her. And think about this. God's kindness goes beyond just those he has chosen for salvation. He is kind to all men, whether they're his children or not. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. His common grace allows the pagans' crops to grow and the unbelievers' diseases to be healed and the sleep of, an, of a wicked man to refresh him. And so as the, the, so as the wicked blasphemous farmer up the road harvests a, a bumper crop, we are being taught to love our enemies, right? While uh, we are being shown God's kindness and being, uh, we, are, we are being given uh, an, a, an example to imitate. And so love your enemies. Love your enemies. Our enemies hate us, right? Our enemies seek to destroy us. Our enemies want us to suffer. They will happily give themselves to sin in order to make us suffer. Our enemies delight to take vengeance on us, and Jesus tells us to love our neighbors, love our enemies, rather. How? Three things. He says, do good to them, bless them, and pray for them. Do good to them, bless them, pray for them. Do good to them. When they take from you, you give to them. When they defraud you, you send them more. When they try to kill you, you provide them with a meal. It's very simple, isn't it? Easy to do. Easy just to, to squash all those feelings of vengeance and revenge and anger and how dare they, right? You're to bless them. When they disparage everything you hold dear, it's your duty to speak well of them. 
to bless them. Right? When they belittle your faith, you praise them for their virtues. You pray for them as they live to see you suffer, right? As they're just scheming to see you suffer, you pray for God to relieve their suffering. As they seek to drive you down, you ask God to heap his blessings upon them. I mean, this is a tall order for proud, reformed Christians who have a well-honed sense of justice. Are there examples of faithful believers acting as Jesus commands? Well, think of King David and his relationship with King Saul. You'll remember that on numerous occasions, Saul attempted to uh, put spears through the heart of David and pin him to the wall. And uh, Saul searched high and low for David when he fled in order to destroy him, to kill him. And when David had an opportunity to kill Saul, he does not. And even beyond that, he regrets even provoking Saul. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you today into the hand of into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. This is his enemy, and he's praising his virtue. Now my father see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. Know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, uh, says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog, a single flea? The Lord, therefore, be judged and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Then David lifted up his voice. Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Saul wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king. <clears throat> that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord <clears throat> that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. And David swore to Saul, and Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. I mean, think of that. Think of that example, right? And think of the response of Saul, his enemy, to David's tenderness and compassion. He's weeping. 
thinking of the righteousness of David. And think of, think of Deacon Stephen. Right? Deacon Stephen in Acts chapter 7 is before the Sanhedrin and he's preaching his heart out. He's laying before them the history of Israel and, and then he gets to the rebuke that, that, uh, of, of these men who had forsaken um, and, and hated the prophets. And uh, we get to the end of the passage. And now when they heard this, when he had rebuked them, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Do not hold this sin against them. I mean, how many of us, I mean, clearly he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Because without the Holy Spirit, that's not what we would have prayed. And think of the Apostle Paul when he went from city to city preaching the gospel. Who persecuted him? Who persecuted him as he went from city to city? The Jews did. And yet, here's what he says about his fellow countrymen. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They kicked him out of every city. They abused him. They slandered him. And now he says, I wish that I could be damned myself, that my brothers would be saved. And of course, the first and best example is our Savior himself. Cursed by men, he's forsaken by God, he prays for his enemies. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals. One on the right and the other on the left, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Do you remember when the spread of Ebola was our collective worry not too long ago before COVID-19 came on the scene? Uh, six or so years ago when that was raging, this uh, doctor, Dr. Kent Brantley, a medical missionary to Liberia, went where there was a huge outbreak of Ebola. Uh, people thought he was insane for charging in there. And, you know, those who were infected, you know, as Americans thought about this virus that was far off, those who were infected were, became our enemies, right? Keep them away. Let them die there. Contain what's happening there so that we don't die, right? It became, they became, in a sense, our enemies. And, um, uh, 
the infected become the enemies of comfortable Americans. And Dr. Brantley went to treat those who were suffering, those who could uh, very likely introduce him to the same virus. And he went to treat the infected, that, that hated category in our culture. And those infected um, didn't like his treatments. They preferred the local witch doctor's treatments. right? So he's not liked by anybody. He's not liked by Americans who who don't want him to bring something back and think he's insane for going. And then he goes there and, and the, the natives um, would rather employ the, the local witch doctor's methods. And then, because of his courageous love, he contracted Ebola. Now, he was healed over the course of time, right? But, but there's someone who is going as a representative of a nation that hates and considers this group of people, enemies, and going and ministering to them, loving them, um, taking his own life, uh, putting his own life at risk to, to love them. Think of the Reformed pastors of the early Reformation who had to visit plague hospitals, right? They could very well have considered the infected as enemies, enemies and just treated them with contempt, right? Infected, hated, ostracized, leave them out. Some pastors did. Some pastors considered them enemies, wouldn't go out to see them. And we read about these pastors. And they refused to visit. Others went and visited these, these souls in these, these plague camps outside the city gates. And they died. They got it and they died. Right? But they considered a, a chance to preach Christ to dying men worth the risk. That's a mindset that doesn't exist in our church today. It just doesn't. Think of Elizabeth Elliot, right? Wife of missionary Jim Elliot. The, this Indian tribe slaughtered her husband during first contact, right? The planes go down to this remote area. They get out. They're sharing things. Seem, things seem to be going well. And then these uh, natives kill uh, a number of people. And she went back to the same tribe to share the gospel. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the conflicting feelings within her own heart? Uh, through her efforts and by God's grace, she led some of those natives to the Lord. She did good to those who did evil to her. She did incredible good to those who did incredible evil to her. I just read, I just stumbled across this on, on Facebook. There was a picture of, a, of, an, of an older man, and it was, one of, it was one of the Indians who had killed Nate Saint, one of the guys that killed during this initial contact. And he's, he's praising God, and he's a believer. Right? It's just incredible that through those actions, God brought that good. So this is the kind of living Christians have done through the ages that we today find so inconceivable because we cling to the world and the things of this world. We love our money and think Paul is crazy when he says, why not rather be wronged? We think he's crazy in recommending that rather than taking our brothers to court. We love our honor in the world's eyes and will not take hits for the gospel. We cling to our rights 
and will submit to no injustice, though that is exactly what Jesus is commending here. He's saying submit to injustice. When you're defrauded, be defrauded. The main difference between libertarians and Christians is this distinction. Libertarians live for their own individual good. Christians live for the good of others, even the good of their enemies. Libertarians hate the thought of that, right? Libertarians are like, give me liberty. Christians are like, I've got Jesus. How can I give everybody else liberty? When Jesus begins making this contrast between loving our enemies and loving those who love us, the point he is making is that we are not to love as the unbelieving worldling loves. The worldling, let's call him the libertarian, is only compelled to love that which gives him a return on his investment. Right? He can only love that which loves him. Just like the example of lending. The sinner, the one who clings to this world, only lends when he expects to get something out of it. But Jesus call, tells Christians, those for whom the, the world has no lasting value, to lend, expecting nothing in return. The return for the Christian comes in the life to come. Your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Now here's another point. This passage is teaching us how to love other people, how to love our neighbors, how to love flesh and blood people who treat us poorly. But what if it is our government, our governing authorities that are persecuting and demanding unholiness from us? When our governing authorities tell us to silence our mouths about Jesus and stop worshiping, are we to comply? Well, the answer is yes and no. The Hebrew Christians were commended for accepting joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So when it comes to property, we can, we can joyfully accept the seizure of our property. That's the example of Scripture. But when it comes to, the, the, you know, to suppressing the worship of Jesus Christ, we have a duty to resist the governing authorities. Yes, they may throw us in prison. They have that right. They have that power. But we, like the apostles and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and Jeremiah and others, have a duty to say, no, we will not stop preaching in his name. And our enemies may persecute us. They may take from us. They may curse us. They may call us all kinds of, of, of uh, names to harm us. They may take from us our property. But as soon as they say, you may not worship or serve God, we must obey God rather than man. The passage we are looking at deals primarily with our neighbors. Another passage, Acts 4 through 6, Acts 16, Romans 13, Daniel, deal with how we are to relate to governing authorities who turn justice on its head and become the enemies of the church when they become our enemies. These passages give us guidance on when we are to submit and when we are to resist. And the basic premise is we are to submit to our governing authorities. Basic premise. Insofar as they do not cause us to violate God's law. It is not love to heed the instructions of the government to stop talking about Jesus. 
right? It is love to disobey and suffer the consequences in that case. I mean, think about it. There really is no contradiction between this passage and having to say no to our governing officials when they try to silence the gospel, right? As if we as Americans know the first thing about this. We know nothing about this. Our, our government is so benevolent toward Christians, it's incredible, right? We, know the, we don't know the first thing about this. Let us visit some foreign countries and find out what it's like. Let's just go to Cuba or let's go to, uh, let's go to uh, communist regimes, right? Let's go to China. But in the case where they try to silence the gospel, it would not be love to our enemies to be silent. It would not be doing good to those who hate us. It would not be blessing those who curse us. It would not be praying, interceding for those who mistreat us, right, if they were to tell us that. In both circumstances, with our neighbor across the street who hates the fact that we are Christians, and with a government that decides the worship of the true and living God is evil, in both of those circumstances, there is something that may not be pursued by a Christian man, and that is vengeance. The Christian may never return evil for evil. When Peter and Paul and Silas were miraculously freed from prison on certain occasions, they did not slay the prison guards because they were agents of the government. No, they, they, had, they often had mercy on them, preaching the gospel to them, leading them to faith. So they resisted the government, not shutting up, and had mercy on their neighbor, the prison guard, not paying back the unkindness they had suffered at their hands with, with acts of unkindness. Um, that would be vengeance, which is God, God's alone to take. Bless those who persecute you. And do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul in Romans 12. So, to summarize what I've been saying, let me put it this way. Hate a Christian and he will return it with love. And find that challenging, right? We hear that and we find that very challenging. Hate a Christian, he'll return it with love. Hate a Christian, and he will return it with good deeds. Curse a Christian, and he will return it to you with blessing. Mistreat a Christian, and he will pray for you. Hit a Christian, and he will turn the other cheek to you. Steal from a Christian, and he'll add to your collection and not ask for it back. Borrow from a Christian, and he will not expect a return. But ask a Christian to deny his Lord, and he will resist you. 
He won't hand over the property of his faith, right? He will lose everything. He will undergo the most humiliating of treatment, but he will not ever cave to the man to bow the knee to Caesar. He will render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, like money, but he will never render to Caesar the things that are God's. Never. He will resist you until you hang him on a cross and add his name to the names of those martyrs who are crying out in heaven. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging your blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Vengeance is left for God. God's vengeance is waiting. It's waiting until all the number of of those martyrs comes in. Now, This has been all theoretical. Let's get down to something that's a little more closer to home. One final thing. It is often those who are closest to us that become our enemies. In fact, enemies that are unseen are just reasons to wear tinfoil hats. Usually our enemies are those that are right near us and that we interact with every day, that we go to work with, that we have in our own household. It's hard to have an enemy that you never interact with and never see. The members of our own households or our own churches can become our enemies, right? Think of the church at Corinth and their factions around Paul and around Apollos and around Cephas and John. They hated each other because they all had, they were all groupies of a different guy. There's no peace in that church at all. And that, and you wonder why they're taking one another to court. Well, dude's a part of the faction of Apollo, so I'm going to take him out. Think of the fact that they're, they're, they're in the, the court they're going before is, is run by pagans. Think of the fact that many marriages are miserable, and what once started as love has descended into utter hatred for the one uh, we once lived with in peace. We must guard our hearts against bitterness, allowing those closest to us, those in our houses and our churches, to become our enemies. Even still, it would would be our calling to love them. Even still, if they became our enemies, we're called to love them, but we cannot allow petty differences to become an occasion for hating one another. And that's usually what, what happens. Petty differences become occasions for hating one another. Our assembly is to be marked by our love for one another, our ability to give honor to the less honorable members. So, in coming days, we're going to have lots of reasons to despise one another. Right? We'll come back together for worship, and some of you will decide not to come to church because you're playing it safe. Others of you will decide to come and will think it's foolish not to come. Right? Others of you will wear, will wear masks because you've read certain articles on the internet 
And others of you will decide not to wear masks because you've read certain articles on the internet. Right? Others, uh, others of you will um, keep your distance and keep six feet away and social distance. Others of you will come in, shake hands, lick the pews, and, you know, shoot a few rounds of your guns up into the air. And it will be our job to love those who have different views than ourselves. Right? It, it, that will be our job. The elders will make decisions that are enforced and lead to our safety. And so you may even have the elders as your enemies for making those kinds of decisions. Right? And um, we may decide because it is our responsibility to make these decisions. We actually have the responsibility to make these decisions. And we will be held to account for these decisions. It's an actual responsibility that we bear. And we may decide to, to have you sanitize your hands when you enter the building. Defy tyrants! <laughs> Some of you will be like that. Some will embrace, some will refrain from embracing, and all of us are going to love one another and consider one another better than ourselves. Love one another, consider others better than yourself, consider that they have better information, that they have better uh, sources, that they have better reason, and that they're putting in things that are better for them. And that's what we have to assume. If we're called to love our enemies, to have mercy upon our enemies, how much more the members of our church, you know? It is my conviction that coming back together for, for church is potentially going to be very divisive time for many churches. It's going to be divisive for many churches, trust me. And by God's grace, we'll avoid that because we will love one another. We'll show deference toward one another. Uh, we'll not major on minors. We'll not get our undies in a bundle because so-and-so refuses to wear a face mask. We'll not get upset when, get upset when so-and-so decides that they need to stay home. Right? Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. And allow the elders to do the work of shepherding that this situation will require of us, right? Um, in the end, the goal of this is to be tender toward one another, right? But don't forget the, how this passage hits us intensely. The call has been to love those who do evil to you, right? And to do to love those who do actual evil to you. Those we are called to love. So those who do not even actual evil to you, you should really, really love them. Right? Um, and so let's be tender toward one another. Let's remember these verses and let's be, uh, let's be kind to others because God has been so kind to us. Let's be merciful because our Father has been merciful.